If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you, if you would, to join me in Mark, Mark chapter 11 this morning. If you are our guest, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. I'm glad that you are here. My name is Will. I get to the privilege to serve as pastor, and I'm excited to see you. I'm excited to see uh, some faces back with us, and I want to take a second and just welcome everybody online as well and encourage uh, each and every one of you. If this is your first time with us, uh, hopefully you got a Connect card on your way in. If you're here, uh, if you're joining us online, I- I'd love for you to send an email to the church, hop on the website, and you can go to the Visit Us joined us there online. And if you're here, if you would uh, fill out the connect card that's either in the bag that hopefully you got on your way in or in the chair back in front of you, and uh, would love for you to uh, fill that out that we might know how we can better connect with you in ministry. We have been in a series through the Gospel of Mark that we have titled Astonished and Amazed, because Mark wants us to be astonished and amazed by Jesus Christ. And there are many different accounts or experiences that individuals within Mark's gospel have as they respond to Jesus Christ. But these most common are that they are either astonished, that they are amazed. But we'll see this morning there was another one also that they were afraid. I don't know about you at different times in your life, but uh, times that I was uh, afraid, and and rightfully so, were the times in my life that uh, I needed to be disciplined by my dad or by my mom. And there aren't many times in my life, many spankings that I got that I can remember, but there are a few that that stick in my mind. One in particular was when my family uh, was on vacation with several other families from my parents' Sunday school class. Uh, There was a period of time where several years in a row, these couples and their families would, would come together, and we all went up to Gatlinburg for Columbus Day weekend, and we would get one of those big chalets, and we would stay there together. Now, everybody knows that when a boy goes to the mountains, he needs a walking stick. He needs himself a good, sturdy stick. Now, in, in my defense, but also just with a matter of clarity, uh, I, as a child, I felt that every single time I was outside, I needed a stick. Uh, my brothers were the athletes. They couldn't go outside without a ball in their hand. I, however, was uh, the storyteller and the imaginative child. So as soon as I walked out the door, I had a stick in my hand, and I immediately transformed into uh, Luke Skywalker or Donatello from the Ninja Turtles or some other superhero and went after the bad guys in my backyard. I had high aspirations for myself. So that first day, day one, I set off into the woods when I had an opportunity not far from the chalet, and I found my stick. And I had a blast with it on day one. And put it up, came inside, we went about day two, and day two I went outside to play while the adults were fixing dinner, and my stick was gone. And I was furious. Now what does a four-year-old do when he can't find his stick? Does he go and find another stick and just be happy with that? No. He looks to the most immediate person in his presence, his five-year-old friend, and blames, Brandon, you stole my stick. No, I didn't. And an argument then ensued between myself and my friend Brandon that got my dad's attention, and so he steps outside and into the fray and asks the question, what's wrong? Brandon stole my stick. Brandon, did you steal Will's stick? No, sir. Will, did you see Brandon steal your stick? No. Did somebody tell you that Brandon stole your stick? No. Why do you think Brandon stole your stick? I just know. He stole my stick. 
So my dad decided at that moment that he was going to diffuse the tension and, the, and, and help the situation by removing the problem. The problem with that is that he considered me to be the problem. And so he takes me by the hand to take me inside where he says, we're going to discuss this inside, just come with me, we'll talk about it there. The thing was, I didn't want to talk about it, I wanted my stick back. And so dad's marching me inside, and on our way in the house, I remember walking along the deck towards the door to be able to go back into the house, and here comes Mr. Pete, Brandon's dad, the opposite direction, and he can tell that something's up. And so innocently, he says, everything okay? And my four-year-old little self looks him square in the face and says, no, Brandon stole my stick. And at that point, my dad had had enough with my uh, pride and my defiance and my arrogance, and I got a spanking. And that wasn't the last time in my life that I was so convinced that I was right that I completely hardened my heart and my mind to anyone and anything else that challenged my preconceptions. And the truth of the matter is, it probably wouldn't take you very long to think of a time in your life where you were so convinced that you were right, that it's my way that you were completely blind and deaf and hardened to truths that were right in front of your face. The reality is our sin hardens our hearts, not just towards one another, but ultimately towards God. And if left unchecked, such hardness leads us to rebel against his ways, defying him, defying his rightful rule over our lives as we march headlong into sin. And we pick up this morning with Jesus in the throes of his ministry in Jerusalem. And last week we saw him come into Jerusalem and throw down the gauntlet against the temple and against the failed religious system that it was propping up. And in these verses that we're going to study this morning, we find him in direct conflict with the leaders who were benefiting from that broken system. These leaders come and they confront Jesus with a question of authority. And what this passage of Scripture holds in our face is that we are not merely like these religious leaders. We are these religious leaders. And if we don't heed Jesus' warning, we will receive the same judgment and face the same fate. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Mark writes, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you what authority, by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. 
Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the leaders were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, I thank you that you are infinitely patient with us. And that patience comes at the cost of your son, Jesus Christ. Who came as your representative, who brought all of your authority into this earth, and who speaks with all of that authority into our lives. The truth of the matter is, Heavenly Father, we don't disobey because we don't understand your words. The truth of the matter is, as one commentator put it, we understand your words all too clearly. We just don't want to obey. And so we rebel and we reject your rightful rule over our lives. We ignore those that you send into our hearts and into our lives as your servants to speak to us on your behalf. We reject your son, Jesus Christ, in big ways and in small ways throughout our lives. But I thank you as we sang earlier, it is true, your mercy is always more. So lead us to the throne of grace. Lead us to the foot of the cross that we might be cleansed, that we might be washed clean, that we might be able to repent, led into repentance, that we might live lives that honor you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen and amen. As these leaders come to Jesus Christ, they challenge his authority. The question of this passage of Scripture is Jesus' authority and what is authentic authority? And in the opening confrontation between Jesus and these leaders, we see some authority abdicated, particularly the authority of the religious leaders. As Jesus is ministering here in the temple, he's confronted by a group that's representing the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a ruling group within the Jewish people. It constituted religious, social, and political rulers of the Jewish people in their day under the Roman authority that was occupying Israel. And this authoritative body comes to Jesus Christ to challenge what he's doing. Because after all, they hadn't ordained him. They hadn't commissioned his ministry. They don't like what he's teaching. They don't like what he's doing. And so they're going to challenge him. And as we see this, we need to understand a couple of things if we're really going to get what's going on here and the nature of this encounter. First, if you look back to where we were last week, verse 18 is crucial. In verse 18 of chapter 11, Mark writes, The chief priests and the scribes heard what Jesus was doing and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished with his teaching. This group of religious leaders fears Jesus. They're not afraid of Jesus in the sense that they have an awe of him, that they respect him. Neither are they afraid of him in the sense that they are terrified of his power, of his authority, of his anger, of his wrath, or any of these things. Instead, their fear is self-centered. 
They are afraid because his ministry is growing in popularity. And as Jesus' star rises, theirs is falling. And as their star falls in the eyes of the people around them, they're losing their power, they're losing their prominence, they're losing their position, and they're scared. And because they are scared, the second thing that we need to understand is that fear has awakened a hatred within their hearts for Jesus and has stoked a desire to destroy him. So what Mark tells us in verse 18, we see that again at the end of this passage of Scripture in verse 12, where it says that they were seeking, literally they were conniving, they were plotting to seize him, to grasp him. It makes it very clear that this group is not exactly friendly to Jesus. So their question is not one mere of an intellectual exercise or a debate or anything else. This is a hostile audience. And so their question to Jesus is hostile. And we see them kind of basically asking, you could summarize their question in this, who do you think you are? What authority do you have? What right do you have to act like this, to say these things, to do these things? And Jesus does what he does so well when he's confronted with a hostile audience or when he's challenged in a hostile way. We have a tendency to back up and go on defense. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes on offense. And so he steps towards them and towards the conflict. And in doing so, in going on the offensive, he exposes the sin and the hardness of the hearts in these religious leaders. In answering their question with this question of his own, he's actually implying that the answer to their question is bound up in the answer to the one that he asks. When they say, by what authority are you doing this? He says, I'll tell you. You Answer my question and you'll know the answer. Whose authority or by whose authority did John baptize? What was the source of John the Baptist's ministry? After all, it was John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus. It was John the Baptist who baptized Jesus. It was John the Baptist who declared that this Jesus was the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. It was John the Baptist who, unlike these religious leaders, when he saw that Jesus was ministering and that he was baptizing and when he was challenged by one of his disciples, hey, look what Jesus is doing. It's growing. It's bigger than ours. What is John's response? He must increase, I must decrease. What was the source of his authority? What was the the authority behind his ministry? And there are only two options. It's either from man or from God. The religious leaders want the authority to be pointed back to them because they're the social, religious, political authority of the day. But Jesus removes that as an option. It's either from God or from man. And the greater authority is clearly the authority from God. But the leaders challenged now and put between this either or, between God's authority or man's authority, they balk at his question. They clearly want to answer him from man. But they don't. Because they're afraid. Yes, they are afraid of Jesus. But they are more afraid of the people that are around them. This paralyzes them from speaking with any confidence or any faith at all. Their fear of the opinions of the people that are around them and their desire for prominence and power and popularity have hardened their hearts to the identity of Jesus Christ. Twice in this passage of Scripture, we read that they were afraid of the crowds. And that's a warning for you and for me. 
These religious leaders are clearly in the wrong, but if we are honest, you and I harden our hearts each and every day, and that hardening, the source of that is a misplaced fear. How many times do we allow that whisper of doubt or fear to come into our minds and keep us from speaking truth when we need to speak it? How often do we live with an eye upon the opinions of those that are around us? In our day and age, it can be really easy to sit behind a computer screen where it's really safe or to be around that coffee table or in that restaurant with all the people who think like you, who vote like you, who who act like you, who talk like you, and you can talk a big game. But when you're face-to-face with somebody that you love, somebody that you admire, just people that you have to live with, there are a lot of times I find myself hearing that voice, you know, now's not really the right time. This isn't really the right place. Hey, you don't want to, what do you want to cause a scene? Hey, you don't want to mess up this relationship. So just, just chill, let it go. Show grace. We use all of these experiences, but the, or these excuses, but the reality is what we're afraid of in that moment is we're afraid of the person across from us instead of the God who's above us. And when the opinions of other human beings are more real to us than the opinion of God who is over us, we are in a dangerous place. When we fear humans more than we fear the Lord, when we're afraid, we're more afraid to hurt our neighbor's feelings than to offend or hurt the Lord of righteousness who has redeemed us and saved us, we're in a dangerous place. And it's a place that leads not just to indifference, but ultimately to hostility towards the Lord when his commands threaten the life that we want to live, that threaten our popularity, that threaten our position, that threaten our power. Instead, we have to choose to live with our eyes on the Lord, to please him regardless of what that means in this life. We have to know and believe that he alone is the source of life and truth and therefore the only source of authority that ultimately matters. The self-centered perspective of these religious leaders then because they are afraid of those that are around them, because they want to maintain their positions and their popularities and their influence over the crowd, because of that, they refuse to answer. And their answer is, I don't know. And Jesus' implied response is, well, if you don't know the source of John's authority, you'll never understand the source of my authority because John's ministry pointed to mine. If you can't understand the ministry of the forerunner to the Messiah, how can you expect to understand the ministry of the Messiah himself? And so Jesus refuses to answer his question and instead tells a parable that exposes the fact that no answer that he would have given them would have ever pleased them because they had already rejected his authority in the first place. So these leaders abdicate their authority by refusing to answer the question. And the reason they pull back and the reason they are no longer qualified to hold the authority is because we see that the authority of Jesus Christ has already been rejected in their hearts. So where first we see that authority was abdicated, now we see the authority rejected. As Jesus now reverts back to that parabolic ministry that he, we saw earlier in the book of Mark. And if you'll remember, we talked about the book uh, or in, in Mark, the purpose of Jesus' parables. They're not just fun stories. They're not just you know, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. They're stories that, are, that, are, that have a purpose. And that purpose is to either unveil some heavenly reality or expose some earthly one. 
And Jesus is doing both in this parable that he tells beginning in chapter 12. He exposes through it the sinfulness of the Jewish leaders and unveils the wrath of God against them. Last week we talked about Jesus cursing the fig tree, and we talked about how throughout the Old Testament the fig tree is oftentimes a symbol in the Old Testament prophets for the people of Israel. A vineyard was also a a common um, uh, parable or a common picture of the people of Israel in the Old Testament as well. Jesus, as he sets up this parable, is actually referencing, almost directly quoting the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, where Isaiah starts this, uh, that chapter with this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked out for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Jesus, or uh, Isaiah there, talks about the vineyard being Israel. And in that chapter, he talks about how God comes to his vineyard. And even in that chapter, he talks about, just like this, that the, the, the Lord built a wall around it, built a tower, put a wine press in it. And he comes to the vineyard, and the vineyard bears no fruit. And so the vineyard is rejected, and God tears down the tower, and he uproots the, the wine press, and he tears down the wall, and he leaves it. But that isn't what happens in this chapter. Instead, it's not the vineyard that's the problem, it's the steward's. The key to interpreting this parable is verse 12, where the leaders uh, accounted to this. They say that they understood, they had perceived, that Jesus had told the parable against them. If the vineyard is the people of Israel, then the tenants are the ones commissioned by the owner of the vineyard to tend it, to keep it. These are the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel. And instead of them realizing that their responsibility was to steward what had been given to them, these leaders have become greedy. And they're attempting now to grab what was God's to give. And that's exactly what we have been doing as as humans since the Garden of Eden itself. The one thing that God told us not to eat, the one thing that God withheld, the tree that, that represented the knowledge of good and evil, something that God would have given in his good time. Instead of trusting in the Lord, Adam and Eve reached out and took what they had no right to take. And that's exactly what we see the leaders having, have, have been doing in Jerusalem and in Israel throughout the history, their history and what we see these leaders doing again. Nehemiah said this, In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. What Jesus is talking about in this parable, as God sends, as the the owner sends servant after servant after servant who is rejected by the tenants and even killed, Jesus is bringing to mind all of the prophets that God had sent to the nation of Israel throughout the history of Israel to warn them, to call them back to God. And because they don't like what they heard, they killed them. They rejected them. Their hearts grew hostile to them. The servants in this parable and the religious leaders of the time, they're reaching for what is not theirs to take, only theirs to receive. They've been given a lot of authority. They've given a lot of privilege in tending and caring for, and they've allowed that to go to their heads, and now they want more. Their appetites are for more. And you and I can oftentimes overstep our ownership 
We can oftentimes go beyond what God allows us. Just as misplaced fear can harden our hearts, so our pride and our covetousness, our longing for more, often hardens our hearts. And we live that way. This is my life. I'll do it my way. Thank you very much. I'll make my own decisions. Thank you very much. This is my family. We'll do it our way. We even do it with the church. This is my church. And we have this overstepping of our ownership even over the body that ultimately, as we'll see, belongs to Jesus Christ alone, where we have the expectation that things go my way, that my, my preferences are met. We're prone to want the things that God say belong to him and to him alone. We want praise. We want adoration. We want the credit. Instead of giving it away to God, we want the promises of the Lord without the sacrifices that he calls us to make in order to receive them. We always want to reach out and take what God would willingly give if we would only surrender to him and to his will. Hardened hearts don't just lead to, to indifference. Hardened hearts, hardened by fear, misplaced fear, by pride, by covetousness, by anything else, hardened hearts are hostile to God. And that is what we see in this passage of Scripture. The irony of verse 7 of chapter 12 is incredible. The tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Do you realize that that's exactly the truth? That's the gospel. It's in the death of the heir of the garden of the universe that you and I are able to become co-heirs with him of that garden and all that it, applies, that it provides. It is only by the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension to the Father, his righteousness in our place, him hanging there on the cross to receive the punishment that we deserve. It is by his death that we are made the righteousness of God. It is by his death that we become adopted into the family of God. See, in rejecting the Lord of the vineyard, the leaders, though, have disqualified themselves from sharing in any of the vineyard's fruits or benefits. And now they're going one step further. They're not just re rejecting any other servant or any other prophet or any other person. They are rejecting the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard. Mark clearly wants us to see Jesus Christ is this beloved son who is coming because that phrase, beloved son, only appears three times in the Gospel of Mark and all the other two clearly point to Jesus Christ. As God says in Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus is transformed in front of his three disciples, they hear the voice of the Lord. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now he tells a parable that the owner of the vineyard sends his beloved son who will be rejected, who will be humiliated, who will be killed. Exactly what Jesus has been prophesying for weeks or months and explaining to his apostles is going to happen to him. And the final line of that parable is a dark word of prophecy against the leaders and all of those who are hardened and hostile towards God. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
As they rejected the authority of Christ, the Son of the Lord, so the Lord is going to reject them, cast them out, and give the promise instead to a new people. Jesus doesn't just explain the source of his authority. Instead, what we see at the end here is he just exercises that authority as he speaks a word of judgment. As we saw last week, first on the temple, now he speaks a word of judgment against the leaders of the people of Israel, saying, you have rejected God, God has rejected you, and is giving what is yours to someone else. And so we see here Jesus exercising his authority. These leaders have proven themselves unworthy, They are those spoken of in the psalm who have cast aside the very stone that the Lord rejoices in and intends to be the chief cornerstone. God has taken the vineyard away from them, from those who failed to tend it, and instead he's returned and and returned it back to him properly, and instead he's given it to a new people. And that new people is anyone and everyone who has not rejected the Son, but instead who has received the Son. The one who is the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, This cornerstone is the stone in 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 time that set not only the direction but the dimensions of the building. It was the chief stone. It established everything else and set all of the rules. And we understand from the rest of the New Testament that Christ is the chief cornerstone of an eternal temple being built by the Spirit. Not by human hands, but by the hands of God. Christ is the head of the church, the chief cornerstone of that eternal temple. Being built by God, of people of every ethnicity, of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every gender, every time, as the Holy Spirit is drawing men and women to Christ and salvation and assembling them in this living temple. And this temple has that chief cornerstone, and Peter puts it this way in his first letter. It stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They will stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus Christ is not just the stone that sets everything in place. Jesus Christ is the stone that everyone comes to where we will either receive him and praise him or he will be a stumbling block upon which we fall and are destroyed. The answer in this passage of Scripture as authority is seen in receiving Christ for who he is. And there's only two options. We can either reject him because of our hardened hearts, because of our pride, because of our arrogance, or we can receive him as our Lord. Because hardened hearts aren't just hostile to God, they are also subject to his judgment. And that is a warning to you and to me and every single person on earth in, this, in the world. It's a warning and a calling for us to humble our hearts and receive Christ as our chief cornerstone, to make him Lord of our lives. There's a lot vying for our hearts, for our attentions in this world, and there's much that would motivate us to harden our hearts to God, both within us and without us. But God has provided a means and a way for our hearts to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the spoken word of the gospel of Jesus Christ when we receive him as our Lord and as our Savior, and we humble ourselves and we surrender ourselves and we allow him to be Lord, receiving from his hand the gifts that he intends to give us in his time and according to his will. These leaders weren't willing 
But the Spirit invites us to be willing to surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ, fresh and new, every single day. Don't harden our hearts, but follow him in obedience. I can't remember the spanking that I got from my dad that night. I don't remember that. But I can remember laying on my makeshift pallet in the bedroom where I was told to wait for dinner and to think through everything. And it was in that place where I had the separation between my anger and my frustration and everything else that led me to falsely accuse my friend that I was able to humble myself and realize, okay, maybe something else happened. Maybe one of the moms walked through and saw a dirty stick sitting on the, the deck and just did what a mom does, cleaned up and threw it in the woods. Who knows? But it was in that place, in that space, where I found the freedom to be able to humble myself. And then the rest of the weekend was fine. How do you need to create maybe some space this morning so that you can humble yourself before the Lord? And you can honestly seek his face and pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would search me, that you would know me, that you would expose in me the ways that I often choose to harden my heart. Where are my misplaced fears? Where is my pride and my arrogance that refuses to surrender and submit to you? Where am I covetous and greedy for now and here what you promise awaits me there and then in heaven? And how can I instead surrender my life and my will and everything in me to Jesus today? To walk in obedience. How can I make him the chief cornerstone of my life so that he sets the direction of every decision that I have to make today and this week? How do you need to put yourself before the Lord today? Seek his face. Surrender the ways that you've hardened your hearts and seek the Lord. I invite you, if you would, to take a moment, bow your heads and close your eyes and pray that prayer. Holy Spirit, would you search me? Would you know me? Would you expose in me all of the ways that I am hardening my heart to, your, to who you are, to your commands? How am I refusing to be obedient? Pray that, and in a moment I'll come back closes.